All right. Well, uh, this evening, we're going to be talking about the topic of biblical conversion. So have you guys ever changed your mind about anything? So think about a time in your life when you've changed your life in any sort of you know, manner. For me, one of the biggest changes in mind that I had in my life is when it comes to bell peppers. So when I was young, I hated bell peppers. Like, if there were bell peppers with my meal, I'd throw the drink away because the whole meal was ruined. There was no point in eating for the rest of the day. But now, and for some of you that are keen of eye, these are the bell peppers that they have at Chipotle. And I'm like, man, load those babies up. I could just eat those all day. I love bell peppers now. Well, I love bell peppers from Chipotle now, as long as they're sauteed and seasoned properly and cooked properly. So I kind of like bell peppers, I guess I should say. I had a pretty big shift in mind for when it comes to bell peppers. This evening, as we talk about biblical conversion, we're going to go a little bit deeper than just changing our mind about a temporal thing. So this evening, the way that this evening is going to work, we're going to answer, oh, it's working quickly. Nice. You don't have to write these down. I'm just giving you a map of the road that we're going to be taking tonight. So we're going to be answering eight questions as it regards to biblical conversion. First, we're going to ask, what is conversion? What conversion is not? How can I know if I've genuinely been converted? What are people responsible to do in conversion? Can someone be genuinely converted and contentedly living in sin? What practical difference does a biblical understanding of conversion make in the life of a church? Why is the right understanding of conversion so important for a church's corporate witness? How should a biblical understanding of conversion impact our evangelism? These are the questions that we're going to answer this evening. But before we get started, let's go ahead and pray. God, we do thank you for this evening. We're thankful for a church that holds you and your word in a high regard. Please humble us now as we come to your word. For those that have truly been converted, help us to be encouraged by the work that you have done in our lives. For those that are deceiving themselves or that are outrightly opposed to you, I pray that you would soften their hearts. You would humble them before you. Let them see their need for a Savior. God, we thank you and love you. In your name, amen. So the first question we need to answer is, what is conversion? The literal definition is conversion is what happens when God awakens those who are spiritually dead and enables them to repent of their sin and have faith in Christ. Simply put, conversion is described as a U-turn in a person's life. And we've, most of us have heard this example, right? You have sin and hell and all the bad stuff over here, and you have God and goodness and faithfulness and his grace on this side. And from the moment you are born, you're headed down a path to hell. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. But at the moment of salvation, at the, at the moment that God changes your life, instead of pursuing those things, you are now going towards God and towards what he wants for your life. You're not pursuing righteousness and godliness because of the change that God has made in you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Ephesians 2 chapter, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 9. And I believe that this passage is a passage that best describes the process of conversion. This passage has way more 
uh, in-depth, we can do a uh, lot more in-depth study of this passage, but we have like five minutes to go through it. And so if you, if there is a question that you have on this passage, or if you're like, man, I really want to dig deep into this, we actually went through this in September of last year. Uh, Craig and Justin did three lessons over verses one to nine. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those because they are encouraging and challenging all together. So as we go through this verse, it's, uh, these verses, it starts off, and you were dead. How many of you have been to an open casket funeral or an open casket visitation? Yeah, quite a lot of you, right? As you walked up to that dead body, was there anything that that body could do aside from like decompose and eventually be food for worms? No, right? There's nothing a dead body can do. If you came to my funeral and I was laying there, you know, I was dead and you brought this nice steaming plate of nachos and wafted it into my casket, would I like float up like Bugs Bunny and be like, I love nachos. No, I mean, as much as I love nachos, they don't have that much healing power. It's close, but not that much. What if you came to my dead body and you said, Edwin, after 30 long years, the Cowboys finally won the Super Bowl. That, I mean, now that would get me excited, but that would do nothing to me if I was dead. A dead body, which a lot of you have seen, can do nothing. Spiritually, this is how unbelievers are described before conversion. Spiritually, they are dead. We are worthless, incapable of doing anything to bring God glory. But what, we were dead, but what caused us death? What, what is the state of our deadness? We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Notice the word in right there. Uh, the word in emphasizes a state of continual being. So we are all in a state of being human beings, right? No matter what people tell you, like you can't be a dog, you can't, you know, be whatever you want. No, you have been a human from you were born. You are a human. You will always be a human. That is your continual state of being. For those that are spiritually dead, Their constant state of being is in trespasses and sins. And even though these two words are similar, they were both put in here for a purpose, to distinguish uh, a couple things. So trespasses means to slip, fall, to deviate in the wrong direction. So as we think about the U-turn illustration earlier, trespasses, you're sliding uncontrollably all the way towards sin and death. The word sins, though, means to miss the mark as a hunter with a bow and arrow. Has anyone been hunting with a bow and arrow? A couple of you have. A few of you have. Uh, I saw a kind of. That's okay. I was in, uh, when I did this in middle school, I was like, oh, Cody's here. He actually, he actually has been hunting with a bow and arrow. So because of this illustration, I actually ended up in a pretty deep wormhole when it comes to bow hunting. And uh, I learned that the best place to shoot a deer, if you're going to kill it and actually, you know, accomplish your goal, is like right above its front legs, They're like in between two ribs, because that's where its lungs and heart are, right? So that, if you want to accomplish your goal of hunting, that's where you need to shoot your arrow. What if you shot the arrow in like its hind leg? What would you accomplish? 
nothing. You would accomplish losing $50, and there's a deer running around with an arrow in its behind in the woods. It's a completely pointless task. You are not setting out what you have been tasked to do. So you miss the mark. What's the mark that God has given us to hit? The mark that God gives us to hit is perfection. God says, if you want to get into heaven, if you want me to show my love and favor on you, you must be perfect. You must be holy as I am holy. Sin is whenever we do anything but that. The, spirit, the unbeliever's spiritual status is one that is dead. He's rebellious against God. He is unable to escape the grasp that sin has on him. In which you formerly walked, Paul goes on. Remember, Paul's writing to believers. Even though we're talking about something that's pretty sad and depressing here, these first three verses, Paul reminds them, you used to be like this. Believer, you used to be dead to your sin. You used to be dead in your trespasses, but you're no longer anymore. So he's encouraging the believers, but he's also warning the unbelievers. He's saying, this is who you currently are. They say, you currently, you currently, you formerly walked according to the course of this world. This is just talking about the way the world thinks. As unbelievers, you have the same mind as the world. And would you describe the thinking, the mind that this world has as one that's getting better or worse? I mean, it seems like every day there's something new that comes out that just strays further and further from God, that points people away from God's love. So where does this thinking come from? Where does this thinking of the world come from? From the prince of the power of the air. Who's this referring to? Who's the prince of the power of the air? That's Satan. Ultimately, this is where sin and trespasses and the, the mind of this world, they all stem from Satan. He is shaping the minds of anyone who's not a believer. And John 12 says that he's going to keep doing that until the Lord casts him out. So there's no end in sight to what Satan is trying to accomplish. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So Satan, his spirit, is working in the sons of disobedience. Who's that? Who is the sons of disobedience? Well, those who have no regard for the will of God. Simply put, unbelievers. Unbelievers have the same mind as Satan. They're not just a follower of him. They are called his son. You are aligned perfectly with him and his will. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Again, Paul reminds the Ephesians that before you were saved, you also lived in sin. Specifically, he brings up, first, he brings up lust. And when we read the word lust, we tend to think of it as something sexual. But really, the word lust is anything you have a strong, overwhelming desire for. So you could have a strong, overwhelming desire to hang out with your friends to play video games, to make money. Whatever fully consumes your mind and whatever fully drives you aside from God's will and what's found in his word, that is something that you lust after sinfully. Next, he says, they, we're indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. 
So before salvation, we didn't just lust after those things. We acted on those lusts of the flesh, doing whatever feels good and of the mind. We deliberately disobeyed God. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So not only are unbelievers sons of Satan, they are characterized as children of the wrath of God. That's not something that I would want to be aligned with. So if we just stopped here, this is a pretty grim outlook on life, right? You look at all these things, and it's very easy to be discouraged or look at that and be like, man, that, uh, that is not fun. I don't want to be aligned with that. But thankfully, we have verses 4 through 9. Verse 4, as we know, starts with, but God, despite us turning our back on God, despite uh, us deliberately doing what we know we shouldn't do, despite us walking away from him, God looked at me with favor. Believer, God looked at you with favor. But God, being rich in mercy, God's not stingy with his mercy. At the moment of salvation, God doesn't look at us and say, all right, you, you've got 10 sins for the week, so choose them carefully. You only have 10 this week. If you, got, if you hit 11, nope, you're done. No, God, he's rich in mercy. His mercy is abundant. Why did he do this? Did, did God have to show us any favor? Did God have to extend his love toward us? No, but he did. Why? Because of his great love with which he loved us. Remember how terrible we were described before salvation in verses 1 to 3? We were described as sons of disobedience, children of wrath, chained to Satan and his faith and his fate. But God still looked at us with his love and favor. He accepts us into his family. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. At the moment of our salvation, your spiritual deadness is gone. You can call it, it's reversed. Instead of being dead to sin, you are alive in Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Instead of being a slave to the prince of the power of the air, we now have a permanent residence in heaven with Christ. When we die, Believers, when you die, God is not going to look at our sin and say, you broke my perfect law. And even though, um, you know, because you broke my perfect law, you're destined to eternal separation from me. He's not going to do that. Instead, for the believers, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You weren't perfect. You weren't even close. I can't even describe how far away you were from perfect. But I love you. And my son loves you, and you love my son. You were chosen to be in my kingdom. Come spend eternity with me. You were dead in your sins, but now you are alive. So that, the, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. When we get to heaven, it's not going to be a, a limited stay 
It doesn't matter if you've been a believer for a majority of your life, if you were saved on your deathbed, it doesn't matter. God promises that we will spend eternity with him, regardless of the length of your salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Even though we received this amazing gift, we're once again reminded that we have done nothing to earn this. We can't be good enough. We can't do things that bring us favor with God. It's only by grace that we have been saved through faith. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. As believers, we can't view our our conversion and salvation as something to boast in. We can't look at it and be like, ah, well, well, God chose me and now I'm so good. No, that's, that's boasting in yourself. The only reason we have spiritual life is because of the grace of God. This is what conversion looks like. When someone's spiritual status goes from dead to alive because of the grace of God. As we continue our study today, I want you to keep this passage in mind. Because as we continue to talk about conversion, it's important for us to remember who we were before Christ. And it's important for us to do that because we need to be reminded of the great gift that we have been given. It's really easy for us to take sometimes our salvation uh, lightly, I guess you could say. Because we go to schools where we don't really get persecuted for being a believer People may tease you every once in a while, but okay, (laughs) they said some nasty things about you. You know, you come here to church, and you're in a church that loves God, that loves his word, that is here to encourage you, and you have so many resources. So it's important to remember the the gravity of the gift that we have been giving, and that's where I wanted to spend so much time going through this passage, to remember who we used to be, how dead we were, but now how amazing it is that we are alive. I said we were going to answer a few questions, and this next one technically isn't a question. So conversion is not. If you want, you can put a question mark at the end to make it a question. So a couple things that conversion is not. Conversion is not a one-time event with no implications on how we live. So while conversion does happen at one moment, it's a moment of radical change. Your life should look differently after that. It was really neat as uh, on Sunday we had uh, the baptism service and there was quite a few youth that got baptized and there's quite a few of you that said, you know what, I don't know the exact moment of my salvation, but I know what I used to look like and I know what my life is like now. There isn't, just because you don't have an exact moment of salvation that you can recall, that doesn't mean that it's not there. You know, for me, that happened, uh, I remember it was Christmas week sometime when I was in eighth grade, and uh, we were listening to a sermon from John MacArthur on the radio with my parents. Uh, Radio is like a live podcast. You know, you guys responded a lot better than middle schoolers. I instantly regretted making that joke in middle school, and I thought, should I do it again? And I did. Kind of still regret making that joke. So we were listening to the radio. You guys aren't that old. So we were listening to the radio, and MacArthur was going through a sermon on examining your life 
and seeing if your life aligns with Scripture, about testing your salvation. And as he was going through the points, I was like, nope, that's not me. Nope, I'm still selfish. Nope, I love my sin. Nope, I lie to my parents. Nope. And he, I had a moment of conviction, even though I had been coming to Countryside for a couple of years. I went to Grace before that. I, I had this moment of conviction where I realized, wow, I have been serving myself. So I went and prayed. I called my youth leader, who at the time was Ernie Black. I talked to my parents, and I remember that was the moment that I was saved. But was that the end of my journey, though? If I never um, showed any fruit in my life, even though I recognized that I was a sinner and that I, you know, my life wasn't in aligned with God, if my life didn't change after that, would that have been a true conversion? No, not at all. If you say that you're a Christian, yet your spiritual life is just stagnant, it doesn't change, then it might be an indicator that you have not truly experienced biblical conversion. Again, conversion isn't just a one-time event. It is an event that radically changes your life. Next, conversion is not a journey with no destination. Now, for some, conversion is going to come after a long period of time. Some people will, you know, be dirty, rotten sinners for the rest of their, for their entire lives, but God will show mercy to them on their deathbed. But at the moment of conversion, the constant with everyone is that it is, there, there is a decision to repent from sin and trust in Christ and pursue holiness. The process of sanctification also is a lifelong process. That's, that's what we're shooting for. We're shooting for holiness. We're wanting to be like God. We know we're going to fall short, but it's a lifelong journey. Next, conversion is not optional. Conversion is not optional. Acts 17.30 says that God commands all people everywhere to repent. You can't become saved if you haven't been converted. You can't be neck deep in sinful patterns and say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Why not? Well, because you haven't turned from your sin. You're still living in your sin. Salvation is impossible without conversion. Next, conversion is not just a conversation. And while, yes, we should share the gospel with others by talking to them, you must also call people to repent. You must call people to change their lives. For those of you that end up in a career where you're going to be in a lot of meetings, you're going to realize a couple things. First, you're going to realize that most of those meetings really could have been an email. Secondly, you're going to realize that the most successful meetings that you have are one where either uh, something is resolved, so like, yes, we fixed this problem, yay, or there's an actual call to action. You end the meeting with saying, hey, you need to go do this, you need to go do that, we're going to meet back together next week and talk about it. It's the same thing with conversion. When we're sharing the gospel with unbelievers, we can't just be saying facts like, yes, Jesus was born. He died on, and he rose again on the third day. Can God use that to save someone? Of course. But if you're just exchanging pleasantries, exchanging facts with someone, that's not enough. You must say, look, you need to repent. You need to believe. We're not just here to, to talk about it. There needs to be 
a call to action. Next, conversion isn't saying a formulaic prayer. So conversion does involve praying, but there isn't a set of magical words that you have to say, you know, perfectly in a specific cadence in order to be saved. It's not a leviosa, leviosa type of thing. There's no perfect prayer to say that saves you. Conversion can happen in many different ways. Like we talked about during the baptism, some of you were like, I don't know when I was saved. What well, does that mean? Because you didn't pray, you weren't saved? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. There is no formulaic prayer that saves you. That's what conversion is not. Next question we need to ask ourselves is, how can I know if I've truly been converted? So we saw what conversion is. We saw it's a, a radical change in someone's life. And you're like, boom, yes, I, that sounds awesome. I, I, I think I am. And I don't think that I you know, partook in any of those things that conversion is not. But I still don't know if I have truly been saved or if I've been converted. Well, turn to the book of First John. First John. This book offers up four tests, you could call them, to see if Christians have truly come to faith. The first test we see is the belief test. The belief test, 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So the first thing you need to ask yourself is, do I believe, do I truly believe that Jesus is the Christ? He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He's perfectly God. He's totally man. I feel like I'm singing VBS songs again. Do you believe that Jesus says who he says he is in his Bible? Do you, I truly believe that God says who he says he is in his word? Do you, view, do you view Jesus how he described himself? Or do you have a more casual approach or, you know, a wrong approach, actually, of, oh, you know, Jesus was a good teacher. Yeah, he said good things, and he gives some good guidelines on how I should live my life. Like, does that end? Or do you truly believe about what is said in the Bible? If your beliefs aren't aligned with Scripture, then the rest of these tests don't matter. You, you fail the first one, you don't get to go on. But if you say, yes, I truly believe in Jesus, I truly believe in he is who he says he is, then the next test is the obedience test. The obedience test, 1 John 1, 6-7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So does your life show a habitual pattern of unrepentant sin? Have you made any progress in the sins that you struggle with? And every day isn't going to be like, oh, yes, I see this giant leaps and bounds. No, some of these things are going to be slow. They're going to be hard things to change. But do you see change in your life from when you were saved? Remember, our struggle with sin is, is a lifelong one, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to be more successful in that battle as your faith grows. Or is your life patterned 
by an overall desire to grow, a desire to obey what God commands us to do in his scripture. One of the things that um, I was told at work one time is we're looking for progress, not perfection. That's how you should view your spiritual life. Do I see progress in my spiritual life? Do I see a pattern of obedience to God's commandments in my life? John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, the, the result of you loving me is keeping my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The third test is the love test. All right, and don't read this as like the love test. No, not, you know, keep your eyes on your own paper for now. The love test, 1 John 3, 14 to 15. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Do you truly love the people in our youth group? Do you show up and say, you know what? I don't really care who I talk to. I don't really care, you know, who comes and talks to me. Like, I love everyone here. Uh, I don't really care whose bus I'm on I don't, uh, in camp. I don't care whose room I'm in. Not that you have to be apathetic. Not that you can't have your close group of friends. That's great. But if someone that you don't necessarily, you know, hang out with all the time comes and talks to you, is it an eye-rolling? Is it a, ugh, I can't believe this guy's talking to me. I mean, yeah, I don't, I, no, that's, I'm done with that illustration. But do you love other people in this youth group? Do you love the people in our church? Do you have a desire to fellowship with older believers as we go to big church, if you go to an adult Sunday school class? Do you have a love for the universal church? Do you do that by, by praying for them? How do you show your love for believers in the world? Because we're not the only believers here on earth, right? It's not just countryside versus everybody. Oh, there's plenty of believers around the world. Do you have a love for them? And do you show that love by, by praying for them, by doing what you can for our missionaries, for the work that they're doing? How do you show your love for others? If you see that you have a hard time talking to other believers because you just don't enjoy them, it might be an indicator that you have not been saved. Finally, we see the perseverance test. Perseverance test, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. This one's a bit trickier because this is a uh, only time will tell type of, uh, type of deal. And right now, you can say the right things because you're in youth group. It's easy, right? We're all here to talk about the Bible, and it's very easy to talk about the Bible in here in your small groups. You could fool me. It's not that hard to do, honestly. You could fool me. You could fool the leaders. You could fool your parents. You could be fooling yourself right now, but you will not be able to fool God. And eventually, the true nature of your heart will be made on display. And with the perseverance test, you can even apply it to now. If you're a believer, ask yourself, do the decisions that you make on a day-to-day -day basis, or, or the overall patterns of your life, 
those that honor God, those that are reflective of what's found in God's word. Because if, if you're doing those things now, those patterns are shown now, more than likely they're going to continue out into the rest of your life. So test yourself and see, have you truly been saved? Have you been converted? But what are people responsible for in conversion? What are people responsible for in conversion? Well, there's two things. First, repent. Second, believe. <clears throat> conversion is a radical turning away from sin and to God and faith in Christ. Jesus summed up what humans must do in conversion when he commanded the people in a verse that's pretty hard to understand. He says in Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. <laughs> it's, it's that simple. This doesn't mean, repentance does not mean simply apologizing for sins when you're caught, right? That's just saying, sorry, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry that I'm dealing with the consequences of my own actions. Repentance is you actively turning away from your sins. It's also not habitually continuing in those sins. And yes, like we keep saying, there are sins that you're going to keep dealing with because you will always be a sinner until the day that you die, until the day that you're standing with God in heaven. But once again, the overall pattern of your life must not be one that is marked by sin. What it does mean, though, what it does mean to repent, repentance means owning that you are a sinner, admitting that you are a sinner. Acts 3.19, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If you don't think you're a sinner, do you think you need a Savior? No. Because, I mean, if, I, if I'm not a sinner, why would I need to be saved? If I'm not that bad, why do I need someone to help me along? Repentance means that you accept that you are a sinner and that you need saving. Next, repentance also means renouncing sin and resolving to obey Christ. Luke 9.23 If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself take up his cross daily, and follow me. Again, you can't claim to be saved and then stop and just say, yes, I'm a Christian, but your life does not change at all. There's no growth in your life. You must turn away from your sin and pursue godliness. Renounce sin and choose to obey Christ. Repentance also means mourning over sin and rejoicing to accept Jesus as your master. When you repent from your sin, what you're going to find is that you're going to develop a hatred for your sin. When you do sin, it's not just going to be like, well, I did it again. No, you're going to have a hatred for that sin. You're going to want to put safeguards up in your life to help you cast that sin away. Repentance is not the end of the battle, but of the beginning of one. As we said before, it's a lifelong journey. When you repent, when you are saved, it's just the start of your battle because now you're fighting against what you want to do. And what you want to do sometimes sounds pretty dang inviting. 
But this life is not about you. So that's repentance. What are we to believe? When we say believe, what does that mean? Well, we're to believe in the gospel. We're to believe that God is the holy creator of the universe, Lord of all. We see that in Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And because God is the creator, he can do whatever he wants with his creation. Everything that God does, he is justified in doing it because he created it. And we, as his creation, were subject to him. You also need to believe that you are a sinner and you deserve God's wrath. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of the God. We're sinners. We're all sinners. We deserve God's wrath. But he extends his love towards us through his son. You also need to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin and that he rose from the dead to conquer death and offer you eternal life. If Jesus simply died on the cross, our faith would be worthless because we would be worshiping a dead man. He rose, though. You must believe in his physical death and resurrection. Repentance and belief are two sides of the same coin. You can't repent from your sin but not believe anything the Bible says. That's just illogical. On the same side, you can't just believe and just know the facts without repentance, without turning from sin. Because if you truly believe what God says in his word, but your life doesn't change, then that's not true belief. That's knowledge. And there's no repentance. Fifth, can someone be genuinely converted and contentedly live in sin? No. Next point. All right, just kidding. We'll spend a minute on this. So John is absolutely clear. In John, First uh, John three seven and eight, he says that only those who walk in the light, only those who obey God's commandments and love other Christians, are genuinely converted. He spent the whole book of First John going through those tests that we talked about. Paul makes the same point in First Corinthians when he says, "Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God?" And in Romans he said, "If you live according to the flesh, you will die." But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Those who actively fight against sin, against their sinfulness, and pursue righteousness are genuine Christians. Even Jesus himself says, a good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Even if you're producing, you know, a, a scrawny little grape of a fruit, that, that's still fruit. If, if there's no fruit in your life, if there's no signs that you want to pursue godliness, then you're still living in sin. And while no Christian is perfect in this life, keep harping on this, no Christian is going to be perfect in this life. The New Testament insists that only people whose lives demonstrate spiritual growth have been born again. So, so far, we've spent 98% of our time talking about what conversion looks like in an individual, right? We went through our tests. We saw what conversion is, what it's not. But remember, our study is focused on nine marks 
of a biblical church. So these last three points, we're going to see what a church that has a true understanding and application of biblical understanding looks like. So what practical difference does a biblical understanding of conversion make in the life of a church? Well, first, it's going to be careful about who it admits as members. Members of a church have certain privileges, and the way you become a member is you go through our membership class, and there you share your, gospel, you share your testimony, you share where you would like to serve in the church. Um, there's more than just showing up and signing a card. And in order to be involved in most of our ministries, if not all, you have to be a member of our church. And we do that to protect the church from, you know, any random guy walking in and saying, hey, I'd like to preach. We say, sure, come on up. You know, we, we don't just do that because we don't know if they're truly saved or not. It's just a random person. Next, the church asks everyone applying for membership to explain the gospel. We do this because we want to make sure that if you're becoming a member of our church, if you're becoming a member of a biblical church, you need to understand what the gospel is. If someone is going through the membership class and we ask them, all right, what is the gospel? And they answer, and they answer with, well, I believe the gospel is when Lord Zorp is going to come down and zap us and we're going to spend eternity with the lizard people on the moon. Yeah, that's an extreme example. But, you know, they don't have an understanding of what the gospel is. And a lot of people, if they deviate from anything other than scripture— they may have a false gospel if they don't have a biblical understanding of what it truly means. Next, they inquire into whether there are any areas of unrepentant sin. And this is, a, this is not a, you know, holding a spotlight interrogation of like, tell me your deepest sins. No, they, we want to know if there's patterns in your life of sinfulness because there's, if there are, there's two things in play. Either one, if you are a true believer, you, we can help these people along the way. We can give them resources. We can encourage them. We can partner them up with someone that will help guide them. Or two, they might not be truly saved if they don't show a desire to repent of that sin. Next, we administer baptism and the Lord's Supper carefully. The person doing these leading baptism and the Lord's Supper are usually careful about explaining who it is and who it's not, right? Before we do those, Pastor Tom, he talks about what baptism is. He talks about that it's not, the water isn't special. The water isn't going to save you. He talks about when we do the Lord's Supper that this is just a picture of Jesus. And he reminds us the right reasons of why we do it. There needs to be evidence of growth before you're baptized, and members aren't going to pressure their pastor into baptizing people as soon as there is a profession of faith. You know, it, that's why we don't do just like, you know, all-out baptisms and say, oh, you say you're saved? Poof, praise the Lord, you're good. Move on, merry way. We don't do that because we have a true understanding of what biblical conversion is. Next, they're careful about forms of evangelism that might encourage false professions whether through manipulating emotions or presenting a watered-down gospel. So I'm going to cut into our music team time, so we're not going to do a closing song. That's the benefit of doing both. And I'm going to finish these uh, next couple points.
So uh, a church with a proper understanding of biblical conversion isn't going to try to manipulate people into being saved. Uh, when I was in middle school, I played football, and I was in FCA, in Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and we had this big, like, FCA gathering at uh, the SMU basketball stadium. And I remember we, we were sitting there, and they dimmed all the lights, and just the stage in the middle was lit up, and the guy speaking was like, all right, I, I want everyone to close their eyes. And we're like, okay. So we, we closed our eyes. It says, if you want to be saved, now everyone, keep your eyes closed. Everyone, no one opened their eyes. If you want to be saved, raise your hand. So what did we all as dumb little eighth graders do? Of course, we opened our eyes and we're like, who's raising their hand? We looked around and, you know, we saw all the people, you know, raising their hands. And on the bus ride home, there was one kid that was like, wait, why would you raise your hand? He's like, well, I raised my hand because you raised your hand. They're just doing what their friends were doing. And they saw other people were, you know, raising their hands. So they said, yeah, sure, I'll go ahead and raise my hand. A church with a proper understanding of biblical conversion isn't going to try and manipulate people into making a false profession of faith. They also refuse to take sin lightly. They practice church discipline. You know, it can be awkward sometimes when we do church discipline, right? Because we're, we're doing communion and, uh, and Pastor Tom brings it up. And it can be hard. But how encouraging is it that we have a church where sin is not taken lightly and bringing, calling people back isn't done in a harsh and unloving way. That, remember, that's the end of, the, that's the, end of the, the road. That's the last step in church discipline. There's still a ton in between. Next question that we need to answer. Why is the right understanding of conversion so important for a church's corporate witness. So simply put, why is it important for a church to understand biblical, have a biblical view of conversion for the outside people looking in? Well, a church that doesn't hold biblical conversion to a high standard is going to offer Christians false assurance, calling them Christians when they're not. It's the easy believism. You know, name it and claim it. Just say, oh, you think you're saved? Yes. All right. You know, just raise your hand and that's all it takes. It could also confuse Christians about what it means. It can confuse young Christians on what it means to be a true Christian. You know, there are some bad churches, let's just call them what they are, that have true Christians in them. And as they look up at what's being taught in the pulpit, what's being taught in Sunday school classes, it, it conflicts with what is in Scripture. Finally, they misrepresent God to everyone Rather than reflecting God's holy character, the world looks at those churches and says, wait, you're so involved in X, Y, Z, and you care about the same, same things I care about. Your leaders act the same way that I do. So why should I become a Christian if we already act the same way? Finally, how should a biblical understanding of conversion impact our evangelism? Well, first, we're to tell the good news. Remember, conversion results from hearing the good news. Therefore, we are to evangelize. We are to share the gospel. We are to actually tell people about the good news of the gospel. But we're to tell them all the news. We don't just stop at, God loves you. He wants what's best for you. You can't spend eternity in heaven with him. And just stop with the, with the fun stuff, with the easy stuff. No, we need to tell them all the news, that the reason 
God shows favor on people is because they repent of their sin because they are sinners. Next, rely upon God to convert. Don't manipulate, as we talked about. We talked about earlier as well that we need to explain the necessary human response. Call people to repentance. People need to repent and believe. Finally, we need to explain that following Jesus is costly. It's very rewarding. It's the most rewarding life you can live because ultimately you will spend eternity in the presence of God, enjoying him perfectly. But it comes at a cost. It came at a huge cost to Jesus. It came at a cost to God. And it will come at a cost for you. But man, is it worth it. So what do we do with this? Now that we know what biblical conversion is, what do we do with this? Well, if you're a believer here this evening, look at your own life and be encouraged. Think of where you were. Think of how lost you were. And just be encouraged that God loved you. He sent his son to die for you. If you're an unbeliever here this evening, if you are sitting here saying, you know, I, I know that that's not me. I know that I'm still holding on to my sin. I know that I'm clinging to what I want to do because I'm cool or I think I can do this life on my own. I encourage you, repent and believe because God's love is enough. He loves you. He wants to spend eternity with you. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the gift of your word. We're thankful for forgiveness, for the ability to be able to call you Father. I pray that you would um, just never let us lose sight of the fact that the salvation we have is a precious gift. We thank you and love you in your name. Amen.